Folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is September 26, 2014, and this is episode 1435 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, that's right. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for your calls to the Think Line. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. 866-658-4465 are the actual numbers. You can give that a call. Just don't expect you to hear, hi, caller, you're on the air. This is a podcast. It means it's pre-recorded. And that means you'll get a voicemail. Here's the, here's the rules. Don't call from a place with a lot of noise. And if you're in a noisy vehicle, that is a lot of noise, especially if the window is down. Do not call while using a weed eater, other power tools, chainsaws, riding on a motorcycle, or things like that. Or while some guy in the background is running a leaf blower. If you don't do those things, you will be more likely to get on the air. The next rule, ask your question or make your point in the first sentence. If you need two sentences, fine, but start making it with word one. Then give me your details. Trust me, you're not talking to someone who can tell you these things on the other end of the line. It just goes better. It's different when you're leaving a recording than in a live call. I've been doing this a long time. I've been doing the call-in shows for four and a half years now, and I can just tell you it always works better, and you're more likely to get through the screening process if you follow those rules. Do that, and I'd say you have a 20 to 40% chance, depending on the weekly call volume, to getting in, just on the total number of calls that come through of people that do follow the rules. It's been ebbing more toward the 20% lately, and that's a good thing, sort of. It means that you guys are following the rules and not calling from the back of a motorcycle. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, do you want to know how to make knives? Get over to KnifeKits.com, and you can buy a kit knife and some handle material and get a book or a DVD or whatever you want uh, to help you get through the first one. You can learn the basics, and you can take it from there as far as you want. If you're not sure what you need, pick up the phone, give them a call. They're great people. They'll help you out. If you're a master bladesmith and you know exactly what you want or need, they probably have it. They also do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Next up today, backwoodshome.com. I'm going to be brief with my endorsement of backwoodshome.com today. I became a subscriber in 1994. I'm a subscriber now. It's 2014. That's 20 years. Tells you what I think of Backwoods Home Magazine. 20-year subscriber. Uh, obviously, I think you should be too. They also have a special deal for members of the Support Brigade. If you're not a subscriber yet, check the benefits section of the MSB before you join. Um, with that, let us talk about the year that was the episode. The year is 1435. Alex Shrugged has four segments at the TSP Wiki today. Made it my decision tough. First one, Gutenberg is sued for printing. Second, China, the Great Wall withdrawal. Next one is Parliament. It's a Swedish thing. The fourth one, 100 Years War. Burgundy packs it in. I'm going to read for you. Gutenberg is sued for printing. Uh, here we go. Most of you guys know who Gutenberg was. He invented a thing called the printing press, at least our version of. You'll learn more about that here in a second. The Gutenberg printing press is going to change everything, but its exact beginnings are murky. The first official mention of Johannes Gutenberg on uh, any kind of printing is in a lawsuit he's currently evolved in in 1435. Yes, people sued each other even back in 1435. What he did was apparently experimenting with printing before now. 
He won't introduce the printing press with movable type until around 1439, just a few more years. When he does, it is going to put more than a few copyists out of work. They will manage to hang on for a time. The artwork they create in books is valued for just the beautiful lettering, but in the long run, copying books will become a rare event. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us. I once attended the completion of a handwritten Torah scroll. The scribe allowed me to draw a letter into the scroll so that I could claim to have participated in its creation. It was a moving event. The Koreans came up with movable type a few years earlier than Gutenberg, but it won't do the Koreans much good as it will the Europeans. Koreans are still using traditional Chinese symbols called Hanzai. Each Hanzai symbol represents an idea or word. In the Korean printing house, these symbols are sitting on racks, sorted by sound. The European alphabet is sorted by convention, and there are only a few characters to sort in any case. Even if one makes a mistake with a letter or two, the meaning still comes through. This is not often true with Chinese Hansai or Japanese Kanji. The Koreans will switch to a block-based system, but the Hangul alphabet won't be officially accepted in Korea until 1894. So I had to look up what the Hangul alphabet was, and it's still confusing as hell to me. There's 24 symbols that represent 24 consonants and vowels, two less than we have, but they get assembled into blocks, and then the blocks get assembled into total words. So each one that looks like an individual character is not actually an individual character. It's an assemblage of characters that make a sound. So if you have two, a two-syllable word, you have two like macro symbols that are made up of multiple micro symbols. So if you're going to make the sound, let's say... You're going to make the, the compound word uh, cannot. I get, no, it's probably not a good one. How, how would I do this? Uh, just look around something in my room. Camera. Camera. Two syllables. Camera. So you would make a symbol out of the little symbols that made the sound cam and make another block that made ra. Camera. And those two would go together. But there's rules to how they go together. So I guess that makes more sense than you know the, the Chinese language, which is each... Symbol is a word. So every word has its own symbol. And even if they sound the same, the symbols might be dramatically different. This is a case for simplicity in language, especially with the base of the language. The more simple the base of the language, the easier it is to teach. And the easier it is to teach, the more that can be done with it by the average person and the greater the communication capability. Anyway, um, on the note, though, of the lawsuit thing, I put out a post today, but I'm going to put it out here on the air for those who don't read the blog. There's a member of the TSP community who is facing a possible lawsuit over an issue where I believe this person is being bullied, absolutely being bullied and being faced with a very short-term deadline with a big threat. I believe the person doing the bullying is nothing but a bully. I don't believe they have a legal case to stand on. I would like to hear from an attorney, that, especially that has um, uh, experience with IPR issues and litigation, that would maybe have a discussion pro bono with this person. I don't know if you'd actually do anything with it after that, but just look, this is our community. And when one of our members is attacked and we can step up, we should. And this is a pretty simple thing to do. Uh, a lot of times just a simple conversation lets you know what to do. The person's actually thinking about just settling with the bully because they believe it will cost them less to settle and capitulate than to defend themselves in court, which is, I think, what the bully thinks, too. 
But sometimes if a bully knows that ain't the case because maybe they feel a little bit like you know somebody that, that just is pissed off about it says, you know what, I'll take this for free, even if that's not where it eventually goes to, sometimes they back off. But if you'd be interested in doing that, the best would be somebody with that experience that's either licensed in Oregon or Kansas. Um, but if, uh, if anybody would like to help, I think it would be good for this person to have a conversation with maybe multiple such people. Uh, just a quick conversation, just to understand what's going on and give them a little bit of advice. I don't think it's a lot to ask for if you're a part of this community that maybe you'd step up and do that for us. And uh, it doesn't really involve me personally at all. But when somebody attacks somebody that, I, that has meant a lot to our community, it pisses me off. As for who it is and more details, I'm not going to say. Any speculation or guessing in the comments of today's show, I'm going to delete them. Because this is the kind of thing that does not need to be discussed publicly until such time as a decision is made to do so. So I'm asking everybody to please respect that. But you guys out there that are you know lawyers... I know there's more than a few of you out there who could use a little help, just a little advice on this one. All right. With that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, which is your questions, comments, and concerns by phone call to 866-65-THINK. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first phone call. Hey, Jack. Donovan from the Pacific Northwest. i got a question for you about chickens. Um, I've got three hens that are currently laying eggs and I'm trying to integrate two younger birds into that little uh, little flock um, my question is how do you isolate the different kind of foods from diff- from the different chickens once you uh, move them all together uh, obviously the two younger birds aren't uh, eating the layer feed they're eating the grower feed and the older hens are eating the uh, the layer the layer food. So how do you keep the young ones out of the layer food? And uh, is there some kind of system you have for that, some kind of schedule? Uh, just curious as to how you do it or how how it's done by others. All right, I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the short answer is you're not going to. You're not going to have chickens cohabitating and have them eat different feed. It's probably not going to happen anyway. If you want to manually enforce this, you could confine them to an area and feed them a morning ration, put them in a tractor or on pasture all day long without ration, and then feed them a ration at the end of the day. If you want all that complication in your life, you can do that. But in general, you're just not going to be able to force two chickens that live in the same space, that share the same resources, to not eat the same food. They're going to eat whatever the hell they want, and that's what chickens do. There's a real issue here, and then there's an over-concerned, ridiculous teacup chicken issue here. Okay, you, you do have to understand that a lot of the information that we have today about keeping chickens comes from people that keep four to t- ten chickens in their backyard. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's a great idea. We talk about it. We encourage it. But what happens when Susie Homemaker decides to keep four to six chickens in her backyard as they become little baby chickens that are like chicken children and they start fussing around and worrying about shit a little bit too much and they get too concerned and then they start typing stuff and then other people offer their opinions and there's a lot of stuff going around that's not exactly grounded in fact and not exactly not factual it's kind of and then all of a sudden it becomes well I heard or somebody told me and then somebody repeats that as fact and then everybody freaks out and oh my god the chickens are going to die if they eat the wrong thing that's not going to happen it's a freaking chicken. 
right? When I was a kid, we had chicken feed, like regular chicken feed, we had scratch feed, and we had scraps. And everybody got the same crap from the time little peeps came out all the way up, and all our chickens just did wonderful. And that was it. And the main source of calcium, which is the whole bugaboo in this whole thing, was the chicken's eggs given back to them uh, and other things that might provide calcium, like some supplemental oyster shell. And that's your easy answer. So let's talk about why this is even an issue, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take a little baby chicken, put them on starter. Completely agree. Completely agree. Completely agree. That's what you should do, if you can. But if you put starter in with a broody hen who has her peeps with her and all the other chickens there, they're going to eat it. So if your chickens are separated as babies, which they usually are, mine always are. I haven't had any broody hen work happen yet. So they're all on starter. And that's high protein, right, relative to grower, relative to layer, relative to, to, to maintainer, what have you. It's a high protein feed. As they hit about eight weeks, we put them onto a grower, and we back the protein off to about the same formula that a layer formula is. The layer formula has a supplemental calcium. All right? So the reason we don't want to really feed our, our young chickens at eight to 18 weeks generally is the delta. For that eight-week period, we don't want to feed them a layer ration is because that's supplemental calcium. And a bird that gets too much calcium too early, it has to be an awful lot though, uh, can end up with some kidney problems and can end up actually having problems laying eggs that can reduce the life expectancy of the bird as an egg layer. It's not going to kill them unless you really give them way too much, not as much as is in the feed. So the best practice is... We take the birds, we put them on a, uh, a starter to eight weeks, and from eight to 18 weeks they go on to a grower, and then from 18 weeks on they go on to whatever they want. And then I've got some birds now that I want to put in my flock, and how do I deal with all this? The easiest thing to do is put them on a, a, a flock maintenance feed during that period of time and put out eggshells and put out um, oyster shells for your birds. The ones that are not, now that you're not using the, the calcium-infused layer feed, the birds that need calcium will know they'll need calcium, and they'll take part in picking at the oyster shells and the eggshells. And the birds that don't need the calcium won't do it. They'll eat the feed, where if you put the feed out there with the calcium in it, they're forced to consume the calcium. You see how that works. Okay? But the truth in the end is, and this is where I you know, have my disagreements with Paul, It's a freaking chicken. It's a bird. It's going to be fine. It ain't that big a deal. It'll survive. Because how do all these people that keep chickens all their lives, they just let chickens be chickens and don't worry about it, and have broody hens raising all, they never ever brood a chicken. How do they do it? Well, that's pretty much what they do is they put out a generic feed and they make sure supplemental calcium. But if you think you're going to feed layer feed to a freaking uh, teenage chicken, it's going to fall over and die. It ain't going to happen. It's not a good full-time ration, but it ain't that big a deal. And we can mitigate this simply by holding off flock introduction until those birds are a little older. So if instead of trying to introduce them at eight weeks, which is a bit small yet for most breeds, they're going to get picked on. If we hold off to 12 weeks, all right, 12-week-old chicken is fairly well built up. So now you've only got 12 to 18 weeks, all right? You've got a six-week delta in there where it'd be better that they weren't 
on the calcium, but it's probably not that big a deal. But if you're really worried about it, go to a standard non-calcium enriched formula, you know, a, a chicken maintainer, and 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 be on with it. The thing is, if this is such a big deal, how come we don't really worry about our roosters eating it or worry about our hens eating it in the time of year where their egg production goes down? Oh, but some people do. And again, I think it's a teacup chicken thing. I think it's too many willy-nilly housewives fretting way too much over a freaking bird. I mean, do you fret that much over what you put in your bird feeder for wild birds? They take what they want. Now, chickens, if they're confined, they only get what we give them. So I think this is going to be highly mitigated by how much pasture time, how much outside time your chickens get. If you make sure they have enough of that, then everything is just just fine. Because they'll take up other parts of their diet from elsewhere. If you're truly in a confined coop and run space, you have to think about this a little bit more. And you may indeed have to do a little bit more separating. But all I would do, again, is go to a non-enriched food and provide the calcium separately, and a chicken will take it as they need it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Uh, my question is, do you have any opinion on uh, affordable health insurance for a startup small business? Uh, I've looked into several different options, even looked into a health savings account, but that would cost over $800 a month for a family of five. Uh, do you know any other options, any affordable options for health insurance if you want to start up a small business? Thank you, and uh, look forward to hearing this on the air. Bye. No, that can't be a problem. We have Obamacare now. Everybody's covered cheap, right? And no, it's not true. There are some things you can do. The first thing I would say is that it really makes a lot of sense for you to do this immediately. Begin shopping for insurance this way. Uh, finding an insurance uh, health insurance broker may help you do this because talking to insurance companies and getting quotes right now is beyond ridiculous to get anything done because they're so busy trying to comply with all the bullshit that's supposed to make life better, by the way. But shop for your health insurance, your children's health insurance, and your wife's health insurance separately and see what it looks like when they're bought as individual policies. You'll generally find that you'll save money that way, and you might deal with three totally different companies. Your wife have one, your wife might have another, and your children might have another one. Uh, so that's the first piece of advice that I'm going to give you. The second thing is look and see if you can buy health insurance through the online state exchanges. Uh, these come in. These are the ones that oh, the, the ass clown made a big deal of going out and buying one for himself for 400 bucks a, a month or something like that. There's a, there's a bronze, a silver, a gold, and a platinum. I think he bought the bronze one, uh, which covers 60% of the benefits. Uh, they're usually pretty expensive and probably in line with what you're seeing, but there's also tax credits available that could be as much as $5,000 in tax credits offsetting. And as long as as a family, you're making less than $90,000 a year, roughly $89,400, some of the tax credits will apply if you structure it right through... Um, through doing this through the online health insurance exchanges. And if it's a small business that's new, it's it's likely that you're not having an income of 89000 a year or more. And remember, it's not how much you collect, it's what you're paying taxes on. So if you have a business turning over $150,000 a year, but by the time you get all your deductions taken out of it, now you're only looking for this last health insurance tax credit, your actual 
income that you're paying taxes on, let's say, is $70,000, you'd be under that and you'd be have an ability to regain some of that through tax credits. Well, this is really a discussion to have with your CPA for how to best structure your health insurance in relation to your business. But those are the best pieces of advice that I have for you. But isn't it great that we have the unaffordable, I mean the Affordable Care Act now? Everybody's insurance has gone through the frickin' roof. Everybody's forced to buy it. Everybody that doesn't is penalized. And everything is more confusing than ever. How do you people that supported this idiot justify this? I know, blame the Republicans because they didn't let you have a public option. You were never going to get a public option. A Republican is going to give you a public option. That will happen in about the next four to six years, and people that fought it will scream for it and beg for it, and it'll even be worse then. Anyway, that's the best advice I can give you. Let's take another call. Well, this is Brad from Tallahassee. I had a question for expert council member Mr. Stephen Harris. I've never heard Mr. Harris mention a um, nickel-lead battery as a viable alternative um, when recommending batteries for a home backup system. But from what I've read, their longevity and durability seem almost too good to be true. I understand the cost um, can be an issue with these batteries, but other than that, I don't see a downside. Thanks, Rio. Great question for Stephen Harris. So, hey, Stephen, man, what say you? Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Thank you very much for the call. Let me start by saying that the batteries that you are referring to are nickel-iron batteries and not nickel-lead. Nickel-iron batteries, this is a subject that needs to be addressed in a little bit of detail because there's so much money on the line and so many people have been asking about it. I'm going to talk about the batteries here, but in a short period of time, I already spent a great deal of effort to talk about selecting the right battery for you and how to make a home and mobile battery bank in two one-and-a-half-hour-long shows I did with Jack. So I got three-plus hours on just batteries for you. So I'm going to leave out some of the basic details in this because you can listen to them on the shows. Both the shows are at battery1234.com. They're free free to listen to. Just one tap on your phone, and that's it. Let's get to the nickel-iron batteries. A Group 31 marine battery, a lead-acid battery, that is about 100 ampere hours in capacity, is about $100. A 100 ampere hour nickel-iron battery is $1,270. That's $100 versus $1,270. If you had two golf cart batteries giving you a good 200 ampere hours, and that costs about $230 total for two golf cart batteries, including the core charge, the nickel-iron equivalent of it at 200 ampere hours would be $2,500. So that's $230 versus $2,500. Now, let's say you went for a 300 ampere hour nickel-iron system. That's going to cost you just about $3,000. Plus, you'll want to have a thousand watts of solar panels. That's another fifteen hundred. You'll have another thousand in charge controller and inverters for a really good one. Plus, another five hundred in miscellaneous cables, wirings, and brackets and hookups. So you're looking at about six thousand dollars for a good three hundred ampere hour nickel iron system, and half of that is for the batteries. 
Now, there are some hidden energy costs in nickel-iron batteries that most people do not realize. Nickel-iron cells are very gassy, and there is plenty of headspace at the top of them for extra water, so you don't have to water them all the time, about once a month. These batteries produce a great deal of hydrogen and oxygen when being charged. No, it's not going to blow up your house or your room. Hydrogen leaves the house faster than you can run, so don't worry about that. No, you're not going to capture it and run it in a fuel cell either. If a lead-acid battery makes a mouse fart of hydrogen, then the nickel-iron batteries make a big dog fart of hydrogen. So, to put it into perspective. Now, if you got the 300 ampere-hour cells that I just mentioned for about three grand, they will take a, at least a half gallon of water per cell per month. So at 10 cells for a 12-volt string, that's 5 gallons of water per month. Now, if you were 100% off-grid, now I should back up, these cells require distilled water, not filtered water, not mineral water, not lake water, not well water, completely distilled water. So if you're 100% off-grid, you would have to make your own distilled water and not buy it for a dollar a gallon at Walmart. If you use an electric water distiller, they're about 580 watts, it takes five and a half hours to distill an entire gallon of water, so 580 times 5.5 is 3,200 watt hours of power times five gallons is 16,000 watt hours of power you need. To put that in perspective, that equals three and a half days of full sunshine in Arizona at noon just to make the water. And that is with a thousand watts of solar panel. That's eight and a half percent of your energy per month just for making water. That's the amount of water you need is the equivalent of 1300 ampere hours. That's the equivalent to charging up your Nickel iron batteries to full and down 80% to 20% depth, 80% depth of discharge mean down to 20% capacity and doing that five and a half times just to make the water with a thousand watts of solar in July in Arizona. Now, the self discharge rate of a lead acid battery is about three to 10% per month. So if you just let it sit there, it might lose say, 5% of its energy per month. The self-discharge rate on nickel-iron battery is 1% or more per day. Per day. So 30% or more per month. So you just can't let them sit. These batteries need to be charged all the time. You need to have a wall charger or a solar charger on them all the time, or you will lose your charge pretty quickly. Just imagine coming back to your battery in 90 days, three months. So that's not too long. Your batteries are dead. Now, the fun subject. What is the life on the nickel-iron batteries? How long will they live for? A small lead-acid battery, like a Group 31 deep-cycle battery I just mentioned, will last about 500 to 800 cycles at 50% depth of discharge. If you go 80% depth of discharge, they'll probably last only 250 cycles. The nickel-iron batteries come with a 10-year warranty, and they're rated for 11,000 cycles, and that's at 80% depth of discharge. So 250 for 80% depth of discharge for lead, 
11,000 for nickel iron. Now, a serious off-gridder would be using large roll serrette batteries. They're lead-acid. They're 1,200 ampere hours, and they literally require a forklift just to move each cell. Each cell is 2 volts. You need 6 of them. You need a lot of help in moving them. They're hundreds of pounds each. The large roll serrette lead-acid batteries are rated for 2,100 80% depth of discharge cycles, okay? The big roll serrette that a serious off-gridder would be spending a lot of money on can give you 2,100 depth of discharge, 80% depth of discharge cycles, and they're warranted for 10 years. Uh, again, the nickel iron is 11,000 cycles, so some five and a half times more. Now, since you can discharge a nickel iron battery deeper, down to 80%, without hurting the battery, you, you can get more out of a nickel iron battery than a lead acid. Typically, with a lead acid, you don't want to go below 50% depth of discharge because you really start hurting the battery. So you have 200 ampere hours of battery, you're only discharging down 100 ampere hours because you don't want to go below that 50% unless you must. Now, the nickel irons are 80% depth of discharge, and that's 30% better than what the 50% depth of discharge is with lead acid. So you can do with 300 ampere hours of nickel iron batteries that would take you 400 ampere hours of lead acid. So there is a little benefit. Now, end of life on the battery. When do the batteries die? On a lead-acid battery, the life can be as short as around five years, normally four to seven years, depending. Golf cart batteries might do seven years if they're treated right. The big roll serrette 1,200-ampere-hour batteries are warranted for 10 years. Now, a lead-acid battery, when it's at its end of life, might have 25 to 50% of its original capacity, probably closer to 25% of its end of life. So if you got 200 ampere hours of battery, you only got 50 ampere hours of battery, you know, near its end of life. You'll notice it's your inverter clicking off on a regular basis. Now, here's a big difference. When a lead acid battery is dead, it is dead. You are not desulfating it. You're not rejuvenating it. You're not pouring Epsom salts into it or any other magical power to regenerate it. When a lead acid battery is dead, it's dead. Nickel iron batteries, end of life means it's only working at 70% of its capacity. That's what they determine as the end of life. The cells can be refurbished by you. You get, you open them up, they have uh, an alkaline solution in them of potassium hydroxide. You gotta dump that out and neutralize that. You get all the powder off the bottom of the batteries. You squirt water in. You shake the cell around. Clean out the cell. Let it completely dry. And then you add a new batch of distilled water and, and potassium hydroxide electrolyte. Potassium hydroxide is a dry powder that you mix with the distilled water. You don't want to get it on your hands, so you wear, wear rubber gloves. And... Now you are good for another 11,000 cycles. The battery is back up to 100% now. There are nickel iron batteries that Thomas Edison used at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, and they still work. 
mine that I own from 1994, 20 years ago, they still work. So while they're warranted for 10 years, the real life for nickel-iron batteries will be in decades. The way you hurt and kill nickel-iron batteries is by letting the electrolyte get low, and then you try to charge them. So a watering system is important, and Iron Edison, who I'll talk to about in a minute, has an automatic water, watering system, but I've not seen it. So these batteries are literally 10 times the price of lead acid. 10 times. That's expensive. But you're going to get a life in decades. So who are these batteries for? One, let's say you're a serious off-grid person, you're 100% off the grid all the time, you live the off-grid life, and you want a battery system that will repay for it, repay itself in 20 or so years. Then the nickel-iron batteries are for you. After 20 years or so, it's money in the bank. Again, this would be like the large 600 or 1200 ampere hour nickel-iron systems. Who would want a smaller nickel-iron battery? Let's say Jack has a bug-out location two hours away, and it's off-grid with 400 watts of solar, that's $600 in panels, a $200 charge controller, and $200 inverter. But he only gets there once a week or once a month, more often when he's setting it up, and then less often after it's completely set up. Let's say there's not a reason for him to go there for a long time and use it for on a 24-7 basis for seven years. In seven years from now, something happens, and it's to the bug-out location the family goes. Well, in seven years from now, when he gets there, his lead-acid batteries are going to be tits up. They're going to be dead. They're going to be useless. If he put in a $3,000, 300-ampere-hour nickel-iron battery system with solar on it to keep it charged all the time so you don't lose, you know, like I said, 1% per day, he'd show up to a perfectly working electrical system in his bug-out location. So that would be $1,000 for the solar panels, a charge controller, an inverter, and 3000 in the batteries versus about 400 for lead acid. But again, what good are the lead acids if you show up and they're dead? Who would else would want one of these? Let's say you're a serious prepper and you got food and water for five plus years, maybe 10 years. Maybe it's a situation where you have a well or a lake for water and you got lots of food stored. Plus you did permaculture and you have an entire food forest and yearly garden on your property. You eat a lot of what you grow and you use a lot less of what you have stored. Stored food would be flour, sugar, salt, oils, etc. Well, if you don't want your two-year-old lead-acid battery that you just got going dead on you after three years of being into the situation where you're eating your own food and you, you know there's disaster and national collapse and stuff, be then you want a battery that would be good for as long as you have food and water. It makes sense. Why do you want to have more food and water than you got your your battery? Why do you want to have more battery than you got food and water? You want them to be equal. Your inverter will last 20-plus years. Your solar panel will easily last 20-plus years or more. So why do you want batteries that only last five years on average? If you're just doing a simple Stephen Harris battery bank for home or pickup truck, from battery1234.com, then just use a lead-acid battery. It will work fine. In fact, lead-acid battery is what 90% of you want. That is why I took all the time to explain who these nickel-iron batteries are for. 
look, most of you know I really bitch about solar. I do that to slap you in the face so you understand your priorities. What good is solar panels that will charge your phone for 20 years and you only got five days of food and water? That's misspent money. Why do you want a solar panel when your car and some stored fuel will keep you in electricity for a good two months? That's why I say, which many people don't hear, unless you have a good three months of food and water, don't even consider solar because it's a waste of your money and it can be spent on better things. The same thing is true with these nickel iron batteries. Don't spend your money on them unless you got a lot of cash or you need a very long life battery for like one of the reasons outlined, I outlined, or one of the reasons I completely missed. I've educated you. Now you can make your own decision. Where do you buy these batteries? Well, there's a very good company called Iron Edison at ironedison.com. That's I-R-O-N-E-D-I-S-O-N.com. In fact, if you're a TSP MSB member, there's a code in the membership area for 5% off any and all items ordered from them. The people there are very helpful, very knowledgeable, and they will help you make the right decision, even if it's not for one of their batteries. Thank you. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. Again, you can find all of my classes at www.steven1234.com. Thanks, guys. Call another question. Thanks. Bye. Well, for many, more than you wanted to know. <laughs> That's just how Steve is. He's thorough. Man, uh, I'll tell you what, though. The first thing I need to do is say, if you go into the MSB today and look for the discount code, and this is uh, September 26, 2014, it's not been added yet. It, I, I just got the stuff from Steve this week, and uh, getting stuff added to the MSB is not as simple as waving my hand and making it happen. It's not a really complicated thing, but I have to get in there and edit it and get everything tested and all. So it hasn't been done yet, but it should be done by no later than Monday. So uh, Steve did get you guys that discount. I'm on the Iron Edison site right now, and I'm looking at what if I wanted to go pretty heavy duty with one of these big, badass nickel iron batteries. Um, 12 volt battery, 300 amp hours of capacity, 2,900 bucks. Call it three grand. That's 150 bucks on one discount. Steve negotiated that on behalf of the MSB and Survival Podcast. Um, even if you're not going to buy a nickel iron battery ever in your life. Uh, I think Steve deserves a thank you for that to even, you know, to go out because he wasn't asked to do it. He just did it. He said, is it okay if I do it after he was like in the middle of it? I'm like, yeah. So he brought us a great discount with Iron Edison batteries, uh, 5%. And uh, if you are one of those people that, that want a battery like this for whatever reason, um, I, I don't think you're going to find a much better product and I don't think you're going to find a better discount. So thanks, Steve. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Dan from Southwestern PA. I have a question and a comment. The question is, I have a four-foot chain-link fence that separates my yard and my neighbor's yard. There's a slight incl or deep incline folding into my yard. Um, the neighbor actually uses weed and feed and treats his lawn. I want to actually, along the fence line, have like an edible hedge, um, maybe like a cherry bush or something growing there where I can, I can actually eat the, uh, the produce. Uh, what can I do to avoid any kind of chemicals getting into the fruits and vegetables? And my comment is, if any of the listeners have Face or um, DirecTV, if you go on to DirecTV and search Survival Podcast under the search option in the menus, you can choose either search the guide or search YouTube. Uh, once you search YouTube, you can actually watch the Survival Podcast uh, YouTube videos on your TV and in your room. So just a comment for all the listeners out there. Thanks. 
All right, first of all, that's a call with uh, background noise. It sounds like it's in a car or something. It usually gets deleted, but in my own self-interest to having a listener tell you how you could watch me on direct TV, I made an allowance for it and let it in. It really wasn't that bad, but that's edging to where a lot of times I will not answer a call. I'll say I'm not going to do that one, um, but this one was a good enough question and a good enough comment that I let it through. That's the edge right there, guys. So that's so why I say find a quiet area to make your call. It'd be really helpful. I don't expect perfect audio. Again, you're talking to a guy that started this show in a car with a, a little handheld recorder, but that much in the background is hard on the audience's ear. Okay, with that, how are you going to prevent the chemicals that your neighbor who lives upgrade of you and shares a fence line from you when you want to plant on that fence line from having any interaction whatsoever with the plants you're going to plant along that fence line. I hate to put it this way. You're not going to. It's not going to happen. You are going to have some of the weed and feed chemicals be part of whatever is on that fence line. There's a couple different things that we can do with that. Uh, number one, we can talk to our neighbor and not be, you jerk, I don't want you using that stuff anywhere near my, because he's going to be like, screw you, and he's going to put down twice as much, right? But what you can say is, hey, look, um, I'm trying to grow some organic fruits and vegetables along this fence line. Could you? Because he, if he's using a weed and feed product, it's probably a dry product. It's probably done with a spreader, okay? And it's probably done just a couple times a year. Nobody does this every day, right? So what you could say is, could you do me a favor and maybe just... Just be a little bit less close to the fence on your last pass. Because the chemical that goes into the lawn is going to leach down grade from water anyway. So, and if your, if your lawn really starts getting, like, if it looks like it's not being taken care of well enough over there, uh, you can go back through and do it. But if you just do me a favor, and please try the next time you do this, to just, just keep a couple, just keep them throwing a couple feet off the fence. It's not right onto my property. I'd really appreciate that. He'll probably do it. Especially if you ask him nicely like that. The next thing we can do is we can build ourselves a little bit of a berm so that as that, as that chemical leaches down through the ground and it gets filtered out and it gets utilized by plants and things like that, that our, our, the, the main roots of our plants are a little bit above it. And I understand it's fertilizer and I prefer it wasn't there, but it's not going to kill you. You're not going to die unless you tell me everything you eat is 100% organic or better. You're getting some of that stuff anyway. So get it up off the ground. Uh, a little bit yeah, with a berm. And those are the two best things you can do. Now, if you want, yeah, I don't know how big your yard is. I don't know how much willing you're willing to put into this and how much you're willing to uh, put in as an effort. Another way to do this would be put in a small berm and plant it with an ornamental. Plant it with a hardy, tough ornamental. Um, Rose of Sharon would be one that you could, I mean, that's, you can propagate that from cuttings or whatever, and basically put in a hedgerow. And then come back a little couple more feet and do another line of something edible. Now, if you have a really small yard, that may not be practical, but what you're doing there is creating a buffer zone. And so, I mean, that would be another way to do it. And you can always, in that first layer, put in things that are very beneficial, just maybe not edible if you really don't want to be eating what's on it. Rose of Sharon is, is something I mentioned. Uh, I have one growing outside of my, my house right here. It grows damn near anywhere. Uh, it comes in bunches of different colors. You can prune it to be a couple feet high, or the one outside of my window right now is, pff, I'd say that sucker's 12 and a half feet. 
The one out there is white, that comes in red, it comes in blue, it comes in purples. And bees kind of sort of like them, but hummingbirds love them. Uh, this time of year, most of the hummingbirds have gone on to other places uh, in this area. You see a few of them here and there, but in the middle of the spring and summer, they're just, I look, every time I look out there doing a show, I see one buzzing around. So that would bring in your other pollinators and things like that. And there's tons of different ornamentals that we could plant there. Um, if you don't mind it growing on the fence, you could put in a small berm, just a, a you know a two foot wide, coming up to ten inches in the center. Plant that sucker with honeysuckle, and just let the honeysuckle climb on the fence. And unless he's spraying Roundup or something, he ain't gonna kill it, right? So just think of some sort of an ornamental that you could put in a little berm, and let that diffuse some of the chemical, and then come on the inside and plant whatever you want to eat. That would be your other option. But you're not going to stop it. It's not possible. It's too close. Especially when you're saying, I want to plant right up against the fence. There's, there's no way around it. You have to deal with it. Um, the other thing you can do is try to talk to him about when he's going to use wheat and feed. Most people do a spring and a fall. And if you're doing any annual planting, try to time your planting uh, to, to the most advantageous time versus when he's putting out his chemicals. But if he's doing weed and feed on a lawn, likely he's not spraying a liquid. He's doing a dry. And that's not great, but it's better because you're going to get less drift. When somebody sprays a liquid and you get wind, you get a drift. All you're getting is a seepage. And he's got this, this, this sterile lawn, and that stuff is designed to as best as possible stay put. Grass is a very heavy feeder. So it's not going to have a huge amount of excess nitrogen. Um, it's not the best for your soil biology, but it's okay. The other thing you can do to mitigate it somewhat is to really build up the biology in that area of your lawn. And the best way you can do that is through compost tea. I would be saturating that area in, in, in mulch and compost tea, and I would put, put putting compost tea down six times a year. Just build the life in there, so the life has the ability to mitigate the chemical consequences thereof. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's uh, Dave from Central New Jersey. Uh, quick question for you. I have My town doesn't allow chickens. I need five acres or more, um, and, I, and right now I have a half acre. So uh, the side of my house, I have a 20 by 30 space that's, that's pretty shielded from the street. You can't see anything there. Uh, I was wondering, in a 20 to 30 uh, foot space, how, how many chickens could I keep and what kind of enclosure could I put there? But that would be pretty hidden, so nobody would really know there was chickens there. Um, thanks. look forward to the comments. Bye. All right, so the answer is way more than you're going to keep. So you have a 20 by 30 area. 2 times 3 is 6, 20 times 30 is 600 square feet that you have available to you. 600 square feet, if we divide it by 10, which is the number of square feet minimum that chickens should have in a run, is 60 chickens. So technically, you could have 60 chickens in that area. Now, of course... That's not really true because your housing's going to be there and that housing's going to occupy a footprint and that housing footprint is not going to count for the footprint outside. But in any event, 
If you want to keep four, six, eight chickens in an area that size, no problem. I highly suggest in that type of environment that you make sure they're well confined and that you go to what's known as a deep litter model, both in your housing and outside in the run area. And Paul Wheaton will tell you that you are a terrible, horrible, evil human being for being such a chicken Nazi and putting them in chicken outswitch. And that's okay because Paul Wheaton, while brilliant, is crazy. The day I told him that I no longer needed to debate his opinions on chickens with him was the day he told me that he was offended for apple trees. When you shake them to get the apples to fall out, I said, now that I know you're nuts, we don't have to talk about it anymore. All good fairness to Paul. I do think he's a brilliant man that comes up with brilliant solutions, but you are not going to be creating chicken outswits because you've combined a few chickens into a 20 by 30 area, especially if occasionally when you're home and you can supervise them and see what's going on and kind of let them out into the yard. I do have a couple more suggestions for you. Number one, I really suggest that the housing you put together, you also think about square footage. This is far more important. Inside your coop, you need the following. Four square feet of floor space for every chicken. So if you have four chickens, you need at least 16 square feet of floor space. Okay? So that would still leave you plenty of room outside. I would, in this situation, four to six birds maximum and no roosters, I think, goes without saying. Um, so that's one thing. The next thing is, without roosters, you won't have, right? Like you hear my, my birds out there sometimes doing. But you know what you might have? That is the sound of a chicken laying an egg for the first couple times before they get used to it and don't know what the hell's coming out of their butt or laying an unusually large egg or just being an obnoxious chicken that does that. Um, I will tell you, do not get white leghorns. Do not get tetra tents. I have both, and they do that constantly. Um, Egyptian faomis, same thing. I cannot give you a breed and guarantee you that you will have relatively quiet birds, especially during the egg-laying process, especially during some of the first egg-laying uh, things. It's interesting. You know when your new birds in a big flock like I have start laying because there's little bits of blood and things on the egg. Eggs start coming out much cleaner after about the sixth or seventh egg a chicken lays. Sometimes the first egg is nice and clean, but my ducks are just starting to lay. And you look at one of their duck eggs, and you go, man, that must have hurt. I'm telling you. And then it, like a couple weeks into it, you start getting nice, clean, white eggs. Um, so there's, there is that, too. So they, they do tend to make noise at times, and they do tend sometimes to be a little bit upset about the fact that this big round thing's coming out of their butt, wouldn't we all? I mean, let's scale up an egg. Let's look at a little four-pound hen with the diameter of that egg. And I think, you know, an average adult male is 160 pounds. What would that egg look like? It's coming out of your rear end. And you might have a little bit of uh, discontent about the fact that you have to do it, too. So we want to keep these birds quiet, as quiet as possible. And we want to mitigate the sounds that they do make. If I was trying to go cognito... I would set the coop, because they're going to go in there to lay most of the time, as far away from the neighbor's ears as possible, which is probably not very far, but every inch counts. I would probably put in some fencing to keep the chickens from tearing it up, and I would put in some hedgerow, either productive or just really hardy, that also helps to muffle sound. 
I would insulate the coop to mitigate the and I would do anything else I could to keep the noise down. And if I got myself six birds and one of them was on un- just just ridiculously noisy, I would turn her into soup. Yes, she would just go away and disappear. And I might even get myself a good six birds if I wanted four and plan on maybe eating a couple that can't shut up. Because it's not that I mind the bird making noise, it's in your situation you don't want them making too much noise. So the space is not a limitation, but you do have noise to concern with yourself with beyond just roosters crowing. The best breeds that I can suggest to you, based on my experience so far, are Americanas, your Easter egg chickens, speckled Sussex, black Australops, Rhode Island Reds, buff Orpingtons. That's that's my experience, and I would say your Rhode Island Reds, out of all of them, I love my Rhode Island Reds. They're great little birds, but I have a few of them that like to talk a lot. The Orpingtons are, all the Orpingtons I have are really quiet so far. They're also younger than the rest of the flock, and maybe they're a little less willing to, you know, try to be assertive, so that might be why. But I haven't seen any of my Orpington hens sitting there doing the squawk box. I haven't seen a single one of them do it yet, so... Uh, I kind of angle you that way. Buffs are great birds. They're gentle, and and they I mean they really are. They're like pets. Uh, and then the other side of this is again I always stress this when people want egg birds. A chick chicken from for generally about six months as a baby is a pet that eats food, produces poop, and has to be taken care of and gives you nothing back other than entertainment. And affection, I guess, if you if you make them that way. From about six months of age to 18 months of age for a year, they are high-level egg-producing machines. From one and a half years of age to two and a half years of age, they are decent egg-producing machines. From two and a half to three and a half, they produce an egg or two a week, maybe. And from that point on, they are expensive pets that you have to maintain. And really, at two and a half, it is time for the stock pot for egg-producing chickens, especially when you can only have so many, because you're hiding them and you want eggs. Because now, if I get four more chickens, I got four chickens I'm supporting. That I got, I got welfare chickens. All right, let's just put it that way. I got welfare chickens. So, it makes a lot of sense also in your breed selection to select a large-bodied bird, so at least there's something worth dealing with at the end. Because it is not right for you to put an ad on Craigslist that says, I have four chickens that I want to give away. They don't lay eggs anymore. But I don't want, I don't want anybody to hurt them. So I don't want to keep them, but I, I want you to keep them and get nothing out of them. I want them to go to a special farm where they can run and grow old. That doesn't happen. That's not how it works. So I don't think you, the caller here, think that way. I'm doing this for other people. I'm also just saying, though, It's something as backyard keepers we need to think about with our breed selection. Heavy-bodied, large-breed chickens are generally quieter. They're less likely, if they do get out, to make it over a fence. And when it does come time to deal with the situation we create by choosing to bring them into our backyards and they need to become chicken soup or chicken stew or chicken enchiladas, there's at least something there to make the hard choice that it's time for this bird to go and do it and end up with something you feel like, well, at least this bird ended up being 
valuable in the end. I gave it a better life than it would have had anywhere else. If you kill a bird and you get three-quarters of a pound of meat off of it, you kind of feel like it was a wasted life. It really wasn't, but why not get a better meat production bird if you're in this situation? Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Mike from Indiana. I'm calling again to reiterate my question about tree farming. I would like to hear your thoughts on growing trees for retirement purposes. Details. I live in southern Indiana near the Hoosier National Forest. We can grow about anything here, including species like black walnut that can be profitable at maturity for timber. I'm interested in growing trees as a piece of a retirement portfolio. I would prefer a piece of ground about 30 to 50 acres that I could work on about one to two acres per year to convert to a long-term tree-growing operation, specifically for timber in the end. I could afford to devote several weekends a year and maybe a week or two at a time to working on this. I'm not looking to quit my job, but I am self-employed currently. What would be your blue sky plan for a project like this? Not interested in a monocrop system, but I'm curious if I could get a higher return if a timber company would come in to clear it. Again, about an acre or two at a year. If this was a predominantly one species, what support species would you consider using and what other long-term timber crops might you consider? I'm currently 28 years old, so I feel like I have quite a bit of time to get the trees to maturity if I can get started working on this soon. Appreciate the show. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to give you my blue sky uh, plan. Blue sky is I got all the money in the world, I got all the time in the world, and I get to use all my creativity in the world to design the perfect system for what you said, 40 to 80 acres to be forested and then be harvested for timber uh, at a time of my choosing in the future toward a retirement portfolio, which could probably do more for you in retirement any way that it's done as long as it's done with enough planting uh, to do more for you than most 401ks ever would. There's no doubt in that. Black walnut is a great choice. And there are ways to start to make it more of a polyculture, but every time I go to make it more of a polyculture, I start heading toward permaculture models, and I start heading toward things that require more time and effort, or to get the most out of them require more time and effort than you, than you seem to want to do. For instance, I would immediately say that the first thing we would want to do is identify the trees that would go along with black walnut, because it is probably the best choice for a timber tree like this that there is out there. And the things that immediately come to mind would be mulberry, persimmon, pawpaw. These all have tremendous, uh, hazelnuts, right? These all have tremendous potential as commercial crops. But you want to work on this a few weekends a, a year, and you want to slowly implement this over time, and you have limited time and limited budget, and I get that. So I'm already heading toward this multi-layered approach with all these different trees, and it's not that you can't do it. It's that you, how much do you really want to get out of this? Like if you really want this to be for investment purposes, you get more by sticking more to a, a model of a, a black walnut forest. Now you go a black walnut overstory, and you can still tuck all this other stuff in there. I would say based on your plan, what you need to really be doing, though, is looking at that which is easily propagated through seed or through the purchase of very inexpensive seedlings. 
We are not talking about planting a few dozen trees at a time here. We are talking about planting hundreds of trees for this type of an establishment. I don't care if we're polyculturing it. I don't care if we're permaculturing it. I don't care if we're food foresting it. If we were planting 40 to 80 acres, a couple acres at a time for, for staged harvesting in the future, we are planting the shit out of it. All right? Now, so we need something that's easily propagated cheaply. Now, I'm not even trying here. I just threw in a couple Google searches real quick and found a place called Coldstream Farm. And I can get black walnut seedlings, 6 to 12 inches, 500 of them for 50 cents a piece. That means for $250 I, in, in cash outlay, uh, I can get 500 black walnut seedlings. This is affordable planting. Because I'm going to tell you, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to do this. How would I do this if I took all my permaculture shit and got rid of it? And just said, we're going to clear cut the damn thing. Whatever grows is understory goes is understory. And I want to maximize the production from black walnut alone. And I know damn well I don't have to worry about polyculture or nothing because nature's going to do it. And I just want a bunch of trees. I'm going to go in and I'm going to plant two black walnuts on center of where I want my final spacing about a foot apart, because I'm going to kill one. I'm going to kill one very early on. I just don't know which one it's going to be yet. I'm going to kill the weaker one. And then I'm going to go in a diameter around that, and I'm going to plant six to eight more black walnuts in a circle. I'm going to kill them midterm. Okay? I'm going to kill them when they're about as big around, twice as big around as a coffee cup, maybe a little bit bigger. Okay? Trust me on this. Make some money along the way is what I'm saying. Okay? And I'm going to let the whole black forest come up. And all this undergrowth is going to come up on it. And about 10 years in, I'm going to have all these perfectly straight black walnuts. They're going to be gorgeous-looking trees that haven't really canopied out yet because they're all racing each other up. And they're all planted far more densely than they're supposed to be. So they grow straight up. Because they can't spread out, because they got to keep racing. Now I'm gonna go, now somewhere along the way, the two, remember the two that are a pair. Somewhere along, a couple years in, I'm gonna look at them and go, that one's doing a lot better. It's a timber tree, because you want timber. And I'm gonna say, okay, station one, A or B, kill B. I'm just gonna cut it to the ground with a chainsaw. I'll leave it lay there. I'm gonna go station two, A or B, not kill A. Zip. Station three, A or B. And I'm going to let the ones in the circle go. I'm going to make that one in the center. I've now selected the strongest one. I spent 50 cents to get the best of two trees extra. I spent a dollar per station instead of 50 cents. Okay? And I'm going to let those trees grow. About 10 years in, I'm going to start having timber companies come in and harvest the small trees in the circle. They're going to make veneer out of it. That's actually going to make me some money. Okay? And then I'm going to end up with this more open system of black walnut, nicely spaced, easy for the timber companies to get in harvest. My spacing is going to be such that when they're taking the veneer trees out, since there's plenty of spacing in between my, my long-term uh, timber, it's easy for them to get in and out with equipment and do it. And then in my retirement... I'm going to selectively stage the harvest an acre at a time, let's say. I mean, look, look at it this way. If you're 60... What are you going to do, live to be 100 if you're lucky? 
Okay, so if you retired at 60 and you had 40 acres and you did one acre of harvest a year, you'd, you'd be 100 before the last acre was harvested. By the way, you could be replanting them for your next generation as you're doing this. Right, and that's just straight black walnut. Is that the best way to do it? Probably not. Why not go in there and also interplant black locusts just for the nitrogen fixation and start doing some kind of coppice timber operation five to seven years into it? So you can hire, so you got 40 acres sitting there with all this black locust on it, and you want to start doing coppice timber for firewood, well, you can lease the rights to cut that timber to somebody that wants firewood business. So you got to start thinking, how do I make some money along the way? So, again, by, by overplanting the black walnut and going in at 10 to 15 years and taking out veneer trees, you've got cash flow along the way. Because you got to pay for this property until you retire. If nothing else, you got to pay for the, the, the land taxes on it. And it'd be nice if 10 years in, you know, you were planting new stuff using money from the old stuff. Now, I would be more likely to go in there and design it as a civil pasture system. Uh, if you want to do this as a silvo pasture system, what we're going to do is instead of planting blocks of black walnut, we're going to plant rows and strips and maybe following contours of black walnut. We can plant just as much a year that way. And we're going to go in and we're going to go and, and, and open up the areas in between the strips and manage that as pasture. I know you don't want to be there. Hold on. I'm going to get to how you do that. And we're going to put protective fencing in as we extend our strips to keep the animals that we're going to be adding to this system that you're not going to take care of from damaging the trees before they're large enough to be, to be able to defend themselves. And we're going to put strips and strips and strips and strips of black walnut and any other timber tree you want to grow. Pecan would be a great one. We're going to also now add some mulberry, persimmon, and things like that to the planting mix. These are all easily planted. We don't need high-quality Japanese, Asian, you know, food-quality persimmons. We can plant native persimmons from seed. We can plant hazels from seed. We can plant all kinds of chestnut, stuff like that. We're going to improve the forage quality of the land. We're going to plant it. We're going to maybe not spend much money at all in fencing because we might plant it and then plant another step and another step, and we're not going to have to worry about fencing till animals come along. Now, the longer we wait to put animals in a situation, the more we've got to maintain the open space. If it's already crappily timbered land, we can cut it as we go and open it up. But what I would want to do is get as much of this in place as possible first. Find me a good local organic, beyond organic food producer that wants to graze cattle and hogs and chickens, etc. And lease them grazing rights to the land and let them maintain it for you. If I wanted to do this permaculture style and have the timber harvest at the end, that's what I would do. And it's a better model, but it will require finding someone you can trust and a lot of it. But there's so many people that want to do this right now. And people that know that we're that what they're doing, but they don't have access to the land yet. That brings you into partnership opportunities. So that's, that's taking it the other way. Blue sky, I'd do it totally different. But it doesn't apply to your situation, so I'm not going to go into it. But if nothing else, if you just want to plant it for timber, centered, Centered spacings on your black walnuts, surrounded with veneer trees, interplanted with something like black locusts, and you're good to go. And the forest that comes up around it will send plenty of other things in there as well. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Brian in Dallas. Uh, love the show. I had a question on uh, animal feed, specifically pig feed. I don't know if that's something that needs to be kicked over to Darby or if you can, can answer it. 
Uh, background, I've got a deal set up with the local grocery store. I'm picking up uh, their leftover produce once a day. I'm averaging five to six five-gallon buckets full of, you know, fruits and vegetables daily on there. And I've been feeding one to two buckets of uh, the scraps to my, or to the produce to my pigs twice a day in addition to uh, a little bit of additional pig feed. And I'm just kind of curious on how much additional pig feed I should actually be feeding then. If that's something that you can answer or point me in the right direction to, I would uh, love to know. Thanks, Jack. Um, in the last couple of years, I've learned an awful lot about chickens and geese and uh, quite a bit about ducks this year. Uh, one place I'm extremely lacking is uh, is pigs. So I know someone that knows pigs really well. His name's Darby Simpson. He's a member of the Expert Council. And, uh, yes, I'm going to kick this one over to Darby. Darby, what say you, sir? Hey, Jack, this is Darby calling in to answer Brian's question about additional pig feed. Um, Brian, I think it's great that you've found a source of uh, free food to give to your pigs that will definitely help to uh, cut the food bill. And it sounds like you're, you know, using most everything you're picking up and giving to them right now, and you're already giving them some additional feed. The main question um, that you want to tackle is, like, how much feed? Uh, do you have to give them in order to fatten them up? And I'm assuming so that you're not giving them too much and you can cut your feed bill uh, as much as possible. So uh, i got to be honest with you, I've not ever done exactly what you're doing here. I mean, obviously, our pigs are out in the woods. They're grazing. Um, they're eating a lot of stuff that they can find, which cuts down our feed bill and enhances the flavor of the pork. Um, so I think the way we ought to look at this is, like, how much feed would it take to fatten these guys up if you weren't giving them anything additional? Um, and if you didn't have any produce or, you know, vegetables, fruits, whatever it is you're getting to give them, you would probably be using about six to eight pounds per head per day, uh, assuming that they were decent size. Obviously, if they're little bitty baby pigs, it's going to be less. If they're getting up there 250 pounds, they're probably going to eat a little bit more than that. But generally speaking, uh, once pigs get hit up about 75 pounds or so, you can put about two pounds of live weight on them every day, uh, given that it's not too cold outside and they're not losing a bunch of weight, which in Dallas shouldn't be an issue. Um, so uh, the old rule of thumb uh, that I was taught when I first started with pigs was that if you are uh, just giving them grain, that it takes about four pounds of grain to get one pound of gain, and it will take roughly 1,000 pounds of feed to get an animal up to about 250 to 300 pounds, which is really good butchering size. Um, if you've listened to me talk at all in the past, you know that pigs are super efficient at putting on weight up to 250 to 300 pounds, and after that, it goes way down. You've you've gone over the top of the bell curve, and your the return on your investment is not as good. So, uh, with all that in mind, what I would suggest doing uh, initially is I'd probably go about 50-50, and I would kind of see uh, how they do. Uh, the main thing that you're going to need from the grain is the protein. So you're getting all these vegetables and fruits, and that's wonderful, but that's like all energy and sugar and very little protein. Um, so if you're just giving them that, they're going to put on frame, they're going to be kind of skinny, their bellies are not going to fatten out at all, and they've got to have some protein. So um, 
you know, my standard thing I suggest to people is to, to use a mix of GMO-free, if possible, uh, roasted soybeans, not soybean meal, but roasted soybeans and corn. Um, you're, if you get that from a local uh, feed mill, you can have them mix in a uh, piggy uh, multivitamin, uh, which is going to help them get the, the minerals, trace minerals, things that they need, uh, because all of our soils are so deficient in those things that you pretty much have to add it to their feed. Um, and then depending on the size of the pigs, your protein uh, mix is going to be different. But if they're, you know, little pigs, if they're 40 up to about, oh, 110, 120, 125 pounds or so, your protein is going to be roughly 18%. And then once you get over that threshold to, to finish, it's going to be, it's going to drop down to about a 15% protein. So anyhow, like I said, I w- I'd go 50-50. And the main thing you're looking uh, for there. Uh, you know, is the growth that they're they're fattening up on this. So if you watch them and you notice that they're not really fattening up like you think they should, then I would increase how much grain you're giving them. Um, if you think they're doing really really well, you can kind of back that off. Um, a lot of it has to depend with what kind of stuff you're getting from the grocery store uh, to give the pigs. But anyhow, that's what I would start with, and then just watch them, keep an eye on them. Said so you want to make sure that they're adding weight and not just frame, not just height and length, but that they're fattening up. I mean, once they hit 140 pounds, 150 pounds, they should like kind of start to fatten up. And then once they get around 200 pounds, you're going to see them kind of get a little bit lanky and skinny again as they add more frame. And then once they get up to about 225 pounds from there to finish, so up to, you know, that 250, 275, 300 pounds, from from 220 225 on that's like we want to just see flesh we just want to see that frame flesh out and not really allow them to get to that next stage where they start to put on more frame again um so yeah just watch them and kind of adjust it as you go and just you know make decisions based on uh what i've told you and you know how they're finishing out um one little note I, I do want to mention, uh, because I get this question a lot, you know, well, I'm getting all this free stuff from this, this grocery store. So I would definitely keep it uh, to the, the produce, the, the fruits and the vegetables. I wouldn't be giving them donuts and breads and all this other garbage. It is true they'll eat it. It's true they'll put on weight, but you got to look at where their calories are coming from. So we are what our food eats. Um, the other thing uh, to keep an eye on and to think about, I'm not being critical. Again, what I, th- I think what you're doing is great. You're taking a waste product and turning it into a usable product. But if you're getting all this free stuff and it's just been, you know, if it's conventionally grown, um, one, it's going to be lacking in nutrition. Uh, so that makes that, that mineral mix uh, that you can have put into their feet all the more important. And also, I mean, if it's saturated with chemicals, you know, you, you are what your food eats. So if your pigs are eating a bunch of chemical laced produce, then in turn you'll be eating that down the road. So chances are you're not going to get, get a bunch of free organic produce, but if you could, uh, that would be absolutely optimal. Um, I really appreciate you calling in this question, Brian. I think it was a great question to ask, um, and I, I hope that uh, anybody out there who's raising some pigs on a homesteading scale, uh, hey, go find a grocery store. Try to get some free food and turn that into usable food for your own freezer. Brian, I hope this helps. Uh, to learn more about me, you can visit my website, which is darbysimpson.com. I put a lot of free open source information out there for people to read and to help them. Um, and in particular, yesterday I actually just posted an article that was about 
pig feed and something really negative that happened where a uh, good friend of mine had a situation where his one of his pigs got salt poisoning uh, from an issue uh, that came about due to pig feed and a lack of water. So uh, just kind of on the heels of this whole thing, uh, that would be a really excellent article for anyone to read uh, that is currently raising pigs. And uh, I think you'll find it very helpful and useful, and hopefully it will help you to avert disaster. Thanks so much for calling us in. Jack, take care. Hi, Jack. My name is Sam, and I'm an MSB member. Um, I have a question for you or possibly Chef Snow or anyone from the Expert Council on recommending a manual bolt-mount meat grinder. Um, here's the details. My wife and I enjoy like having our adult children and grandchildren over for cookouts that generally involve throwing some gourmet burgers on the grill. My wife has a great recipe for Thai chicken burgers, but lately at the several grocery stores in our area, we've been having trouble finding ground chicken. We can find ground turkey and ground beef all day, but no chicken. I told my wife we can start buying chicken, buying chicken on sale and grinding it ourselves. In the future, we can also do uh, sausage and beef burgers with it. Um, I've done a lot of research, and I definitely think I want a bolt-down manual meat grinder, but I can't find very many reviews on them. I've looked at layman's, but again, the reviews aren't that great. Um, I think cast iron would hold up better than stainless steel, but I'd like to hear from you guys. I'm not a millionaire or anything like that, but I want to get a quality item. Um, everything I buy, I buy with the intent to use it the rest of my life and pass it on down to my kids, so I don't mind paying for quality. Uh, please give me some recommendations for the meat grinder like this. Uh, if it's a factor, I'm guessing we would be running about 30 pounds of meat through this thing about four times a year. Um, what we've been doing is buying meat when it's on sale, freezing it, then processing it into burgers or whatever. Thanks for the show, Jack, and look forward to hearing from you guys. Okay, I have three different ways I'm going to answer this. Number one, you may not need to do this, and you may want to keep the $150, $250 you're going to spend for a really good grinder for other purposes. I want you to try something first. Wherever you're going to buy this chicken, instead of just looking for ground chicken, I want you to go to the meat counter, and I want you to ask them if they grind meat on request. And it may be that you can go out there when they have a deli case full of skinless, boneless chicken of whatever kind you want to buy. And I'm not going to say anything about whether you should buy organic or whatever. Whatever you buy, doesn't matter. It gets all ground the same way. And, and take it up there in your arms and say, grind it for me. And they'll say, hold on. And they'll go back there and throw it in a big old super-sized industrial grinder and do it. And about the only time they're not going to want to do that for you is toward the end of the day, because they have to clean the whole damn thing again, or if it's going to possibly get involved with other meats. So often, you know, they don't want to do it when you ask, but if you say, well, when would be the best time, or can I put in an order a week in advance? Almost every supermarket out there that actually has a butchered section where they actually do cutting and grinding of meat will just do it for you. And they'll never complain, and they'll never bitch. Now, how does that work with sales? Usually, if you if you become a regular customer to a place like this and say, I want to do it when the sales are up, whatever, they'll let you do it. They'll work with you. So the first thing is maybe you don't need to do it. Maybe you don't need to take on all that it takes to do this because the other thing to consider is if you're going to buy chicken to grind yourself, well, unless you buy skinless, boneless chicken, you got to skin it and bone it. Now, if you're going to make stock with all that extra, that's fine. But you're going to have this this waste product you're going to have to deal with, so think about that as well. Now, on to a grinder. 
I've used a lot of hand crank grinders in my life. Um, the closest thing to whatever the hell it is that's still at my dad's house that he won't give me, even though he doesn't use it, is available from Lemons. And it is called a Chop Right Grinder. And it is after looking at grinders and playing with them and what have you, it is probably the best thing that you're going to find. A number uh, 22, which is the middle size one, is about 250 bucks, And I would probably, with the amount you want to grind per session, go with that. Grinding meat gets old fast when you're sitting there turning a crank. And this was from a guy that when I was a kid would sit down and grind 30 or 40 pounds or more of deer meat at a session. Let me explain something to you about reviews on grinders. Part of why people have poor reviews on grinders is they don't know what the hell they're doing. You do not take a big, giant chunk of meat and start pushing it into a grinder. Not the size grinder that you're going to have in your house. You need to cut it into small, manageable pieces. The other reason is the majority of people that buy a grinder for use in their home buy it to either grind up cheap cuts of beef at home, which again... Especially beef. Beef's easy because it doesn't bother any other meats. If you go to your grocer and say, your meat counter grocer, and say, will you grind this up for me, they'll do it. Right? My dad is very particular about his meat. He does it all the time. That's why you should give me the damn grinder, Dad. Anyway, so he buys certain roasts because he wants certain types of meat. And he uses mostly ground meat for whatever reason. And he'll go in and he'll say, I want you to grind this. And they'll grumble sometimes. But once you, you know, get to be a regular, they just do it for you. So they do that. So they get a big old chuck roast with all kinds of fat and big old hunks of freaking tallow in it. Or more frequently, they're deer hunters, and deer meat looks different than beef. And you got this stuff called a silver sheen on it, and it's these this 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 thin layer, and they think, I'll just shove that in there and grind it. Well, what happens, and, and, and hogs do this too, that, that sheen, if you don't strip that off the meat before you put it in the grinder, it wraps around... The, the, the corkscrew piece of the grinder and it screws everything up and instead of getting nice chopped meat you start getting paste and it gets bound up so a lot of the poor re, uh, reviews that you read from about grinders even if they're a low end cheap not so great grinder is more about the application of the, the use of the grinder than it is about whether or not the grinder works this thing the chop right bolt down grinder works great but you're going to sit there and crank chicken is going to be easier to grind than most things It's a soft meat. It doesn't have tallow. It doesn't have silver sheen. It'll go right that gone through. You might want to consider an electric grinder here. You really might if you're in, wanting a grinder because I'm telling you, that cranking gets old. But if I were going to buy anything on a, on a bolt-down cast iron grinder, I'd buy the chop right one. I think that's probably the best that you're going to do. That's about $250 bucks for the number 22. And if you want a lifetime purchase, I'm telling you, you it will it will grind long before you get, before you, before you, I'll say you'll wear out grinding before it will, long before it will. The, uh, the number 12 grinder uh, is about $140 bucks. From ChopRite. And it's a good grinder. And it'll do what you want. And especially grinding chicken and doing it a couple times a year, a couple four times a year, it, it, it'll work just fine. You'll just be happier if you spend the extra money. 
the the big grinder, right? The the big uh, number 32 grinder is like 320 bucks. Unless you're going to do a lot of grinding, I probably wouldn't step up to that one. It's probably not worth the extra money. The middle of the road one's where I would go with it. Um, but if you're just going to mostly do chicken, the smaller grinder will work just fine. It'll it'll ground about you know three three pounds a minute. But that's not a minute that you're there playing with. That's a minute that you're actually cranking the damn thing, you know. So if you had, you know, 30 pounds theoretically, you could grind it in, you know, 10 minutes. And I'm telling you, it's going to be more like if you're doing 30 pounds of chicken and not counting cutting it into pieces and stuff like that, you're probably looking at 40 minutes because you're going to get tired of doing it. You just are. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Robert out of North Carolina, and I just wanted to call and kind of comment uh, on the rant that you went on about CTS, I think it was last Friday. I really just wanted to share uh, my personal experience with CTS, and to uh, make a really long story short, we have a uh, 14-year-old girl who's been living with us for this past couple of months. She's a friend of my daughter's. Her father's in jail and uh, her mother is heavily addicted to pain medication. We convinced her mom to let us live with her as they were get, let, let, let her live with us as they were getting evicted from their house. And uh, after having several interactions with the mom, we decided to uh, take it to CPS. The uh, CPS agent that we talked to, we took the 14-year-old girl and the CPS agent that we talked to, absolutely refused to take a report even with the girl there sharing her story and telling her or telling them everything that she saw they refused to take a report um, so from there we called the uh, supervisors and nobody would return our call pretty much got ignored I was just uh, very disgusted with the way that CPS uh, treated us and um, how they just pretty much blew us off All the uh, local law enforcement here in the area know this girl's family and have told us to do whatever we can to keep her away from her family and to keep her safe. So what we've had to do is they've come to the house a couple of times and we've had to tell them that she doesn't want to come out. They can't go in our house, but if they want to call the police, the police can come in and talk to her. And, of course, they never want to get the uh, police involved. So anyway, I just wanted to share that. Um, I really like the direction you guys are going right lately on the show as far as uh, talking about the youth and about CPS being an enemy of our, our children. Um, they are definitely not there to help at all. And I uh, love the show, love what you're doing, and uh, thanks a lot. Bye. I know everybody thinks a big old jack rant on the evils of the state and and uh, Child Protective Services is coming. I don't know. In this case, actually, you might be surprised that I might say that in this instance, the people you're talking to at CPS may be making the best decision they can under the circumstances. And Let me tell you why. Right now, this kid is living with you. You have chosen to take him into your home. You have no parental rights to this child whatsoever. However, the father is in prison or jail slash and, and, and doesn't have any ability to do anything about it. And mom's all doped up and has not tried to assert her parental rights at all. So right now, this is kind of up in the air. 
uh, when and and CPS apparently probably knows through contact with law enforcement that when uh, family members uh, attempt to come there to do anything that you're telling them to go pound sand and talk to the police if they don't like it and they're shit scared of the police so they won't do it so in a roundabout screwed up way they might be saying the best place for this child right now is with this family and if we intervene that's not going to be the case anymore because when we do we're going to find that the child's home life is unfit that these people have no legal right to the child and as soon as we get involved and write up a report which is what you asked them to do the state's going to get involved and the state is going to say that not only is this child not safe with a drug addicted mother and a father in in jail and uh, being evicted and having no place to go they're currently residing with people with no custodial rights and therefore at least temporary to figure out what to do the state needs to take custody custody of this child. And once the child goes into the state's custody, getting it back out is like a it's like that 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 thing in in uh, Return of the Jedi that eats people in the middle of the desert, right? It's very difficult to get back out of there unless Lando throws you a laser or something like that. So, these people might have a brain and might be saying to themselves, it's better that we do nothing in the current situation. Or they just might be incompetent and not care. I don't know. But I wanted to point out that's at least possible here. Because you have to ask yourself, what happens if they write up a report? Do you think that the state's going to say that you, who have no, uh, no blood relations whatsoever to this person, have filed no formal paperwork whatsoever, have any custodial rights whatsoever to this child. And if you don't, then somebody has to. And if mom's not competent and dad's not available and the rest of the family is a bunch of degenerates, then who steps in? Dun, 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 the state who knows all things. And maybe the statists that came out and talked to you realize how bad that is. It's just possible. Because the other side is they're just apathetic and useless. Because I'll tell you, I know of many stories of CPS getting involved and bullying parents and either attempting to or successfully taking children from parents who are good parents. And I know of many stories where CPS doesn't do jack shit to the kids that needs them the most. So it could be one of those or it could be, I don't know, somebody with understanding of the social network system that involves around CPS. I'd love to hear from you. What would happen if they had written a report? Would, in fact, this child have ended up remanded to the state's custody, or would the state have been forced at that point to possibly place the child in the custody of a relative who says they're willing to do so, even though they shouldn't be been there? And it would, is it possible that CPS was smart enough in this case to say, it's better that we don't get involved? Um, and that assumes that your intention is to continue to provide a place for this young person to live. Um, and even if that's the case, the CPS agent might have said it's in the best interest of the child since this guy's willing to do it for the child to stay there. Just saying, sometimes people in government think outside of the system a little bit and do the best they can within the confines of the system that they're part of. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Kevin from Texas. 
a uh, special weapons and tactics for robbers. Stop shooting! Stop shooting! I'm the police. I'm the police. I mean, wouldn't that make just as much sense? I'm talking about uh, the guy in Colleen and getting the death penalty charge put on him. Insanity. Hey, if I was a robber kicking in your freaking window, you started shooting rounds down range at me, what's the first thing I would do? I personally would start using special weapons and tactics and saying, as a special weapons and tactics employee, stop shooting. I'm the police. I'm here to help you. That's my thoughts, Jack. Thanks. Yeah, I, I I have a habit of not stating a, 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 an opinion on an occurrence until I have more information, and I'm going to stick to that on this one. I don't know if the cops that, that got shot in this completely and totally were wrong and the guy was just defending himself or that, you know, there's some sort of circumstance why they're pursuing this as a murder charge or they don't really even intend to bring it on full on as a murder charge. They're trying to get a plea bargain and they believe they have a lesser charge they could convict on and they're trying to avoid that trial. I don't really know. Or it's just a case of the state being stupid, the officers and the people that ordered the raid being stupid, and the guy just defended himself. Now the state's trying to cover its ass. I don't know which one it is. And until more information is made available about what evidence the state actually has, we really can't have an opinion other than if you kick somebody's window in at 5.30 in the morning, cop or not, you're likely to get your ass shot. So it's at least reasonable to assume that this man was in fear of his life and trying to defend himself. Whether he was a Boy Scout or a scumbag doesn't really matter. If I'm a scumbag and somebody breaks into my home and tries to harm me, I have just as much right to defend my life and my property and my family as anybody else does. That's part of being an American. That's part of being a human. That's not a constitutional right. That is a right protected by the Constitution. Those are two very different things. I will say this, though, as a warning to law enforcement that does stupid shit like this. The caller's right. Screaming, I'm a police officer, don't shoot, is not, is not, is not uh, like like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card after you've kicked somebody's window in. You serve a no-knock warrant in the dark on a guy with no dope, by the way, and somebody shoots at you. Well, I'm sorry. That's the. I mean, if I'm on this jury, I'm not saying the state could not present evidence that when this man fired, he did in, ha in fact have the knowledge that he was shooting at police officers. I'm saying the state would have a huge, massive, monumental burden of proof to get me to convict on any charge, let alone capital murder. Okay, And this is, this is what I want to try to explain to police officers. If you don't act like a police officer is supposed to act, it is reasonable that someone will think you're not, even if you're in uniform, or even if you've shown a badge. There are certain behaviors and characteristics that police officers are expected to abide by, and the public has come to expect. Police officers, when they want to know what you're up to, come to your front door, knock on it, say, hello, sir, it's police, I'd like to speak to you. If they have a warrant... They ask to come in, and if you say no, they present the warrant, and they come in. If they don't have a warrant, you can choose to let them in or not. This is how a police officer conducts himself. Even in un, you know a person in plain clothes, a detective, what have you, that's how they conduct themselves. That a SWAT team 
only smashes your door in and comes in through your window in the dark when you're holding hostages or you're armed to the teeth and you've got a bunch of dope heads in there or something like that, that if you're just a small-time dope dealer, which it seems like this guy might have been, some small-time pot dealer, maybe, we don't even know, okay, but he could have been, um, this SWAT doesn't come kick your door in. It is unreasonable to believe that an individual in that situation who has somebody forcibly enter their window at 5.30 in the morning would expect it's a police officer because you're not acting like a police officer. It makes me think of some sales training I had. A guy said that he actually had a job with Xerox. Uh, it was Xerox or some copy company back in the 80s when, when that was a big deal to sell those things. Um, you know, you used to go down to the store and buy one. It was something companies bought only and things like that. And He went up to run his rounds, and he had Alaska in his territory. And he went to, I think, Anchorage. And he went to all the places that he was supposed to go to. And did everything he was supposed to do and met with everybody he was supposed to meet with. But at the time, the fact that the sales rep showed up was a big deal to people. People expected that the Xerox dude would be there once a month to, to do their thing. And the, and, and the company's dress code was a suit, suit and tie. And he did not wear a suit and tie. He thought, this is Alaska. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture out on my own, take some initiative, make my own decision, and dress the way I expect. I'm going to dress business casual, no tie, uh, just a dress shirt and some slacks and, and what have you. And he went, and no one had a problem with this, by the way, except his boss when it got back to him. But here's how it got back to him. A lot of the people that didn't really have direct interaction with him as the sales rep but had like the one-off interaction. Like if they had a question or a concern, when they saw him come into their place of business, they'd say, oh, that's the Xerox guy, and they'd go up and talk to him, or they just acknowledge, hey, the Xerox dude came by. Now, this guy's manager was a, a, a hands-on manager, and he wanted to make sure, since he's got salespeople traveling all over the country that supposedly are going places and doing things, that they're actually doing it. So... He would call people and say, you know, how'd he do? Was he there? Did he? And he had actually run, this guy had moved up in management and it was an old area of his territory. And he would call certain people instead of calling the contact, who a lot of times, you know, you get kind of this back door, I scratch your back, you never throw me under the bus. I don't, and he would call someone that just was uh, the one off. And lo and behold, there were several people that said, we didn't see him this month. He wasn't here. And, So he get he gets confronted by his boss. You know, I have several contacts that on your latest sales route that you ran said that you weren't ever there. And he said I absolutely was there. And he showed them all the time cards and he had orders from some of the for like materials, additional machines and things like that. He's like I had to have been there. I got an order from the guy. This is the guy that I met with. And and so the two of them now realize okay something's wrong here. Of course. This guy doesn't admit that he wasn't wearing a suit or even, he doesn't even think of it at the time. And they know something's not right, but the boss now trusts the employee and starts trying to figure out what's going on. So they finally track it back to a couple places they were, and now they're both like on this, like, a, like no one's upset anymore. Now they both want to know what the hell happened. So they call one of their, one of their better contacts where there was a person there that said, I never saw him this month. And uh, they talked to the guy that he got this order from. And he goes, oh, yeah, he was here. It was fine. We talked. We sat down. Uh, he brought some donuts in for the office. I don't know why it was. So they say, well, here's my contact. I did my follow-up and my due diligence with. And he said he never saw the guy. 
So the guy says, oh, I know him. He's right outside the door. I was like, get on in here. So he brings them in, and they, he says, you know, I talk to you. And he says, yeah, I never saw him. And the guy says, he was here last month, you know, last week or whatever. He brought some donuts in. He goes, oh, that was him? He goes, yeah, that was him. And the guy says, well, I didn't know it was him. He goes, why didn't you know it was him? He goes, he didn't dress like the, like the Xerox guy. He wasn't in a suit. You got it? All of a sudden, the dress code actually mattered because everybody had come to... And since he didn't walk around all the offices and say, I'm the new rep, no one outside of the direct contacts recognized who he was supposed to be because he didn't look right. It's a minor consequence when it's a sales call. Officers, I don't care if you're in uniform, when you behave outside of the way you're supposed to behave, it is perfectly reasonable for a citizen to think, this guy might not actually be a cop, because dressing up like cops, flashing badges, claiming to be police officers are all things criminals have done. One of the primary ways I know you're an officer of the law is for you to look like you're an officer of the law, behave like an officer of the law, Keep your freaking cool and not be a jackass and follow procedures. And by the way, follow the dadgone law that you've swore to uphold and defend. And that does not mean kicking down the window at 5.30 in the morning of a low-level supposed drug dealer that doesn't even look like he was that. Just saying. That's something you all need to think about. And we as citizens, we have to think about that too. Just saying you're a cop and showing me a badge does not mean I'm going to comply with everything you ask me to comply with. I am perfectly within my rights to say, I want another officer here. I don't feel comfortable about this. And when you won't let me, when you won't let me do that, and I, I appear to pose no physical threat to you, I have every reason in the world to believe that you are a threat to my safety and you are not who you say you are. I don't care what your car looks like. I don't care what your uniform looks like. I don't care what your badge looks like. Because I could tomorrow walk out, pop a cop in the head, put his clothes on, get in his car, and drive it to somebody's house and say, hey, I'm a cop, I'm here. Right, But I'm not going to follow the systems and procedures if I'm not a real police officer because I have not been trained to do so. Please, law enforcement, I'm not coming down on you. I'm saying you have got to think about the way you react and interact with people because there is a reasonable suspicion by people that someone who's not behaving the right way may not be who they say that they are. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, how's it going? Hey, I want to know why is it that your accent changes because when you get angry you talk like you're like from New Jersey or New York or you're talking about like homesteading, farming, making beer, making wine, you have that country accent. I just wonder why that is. Is that for emphasis or is that part of the kind of, you know, the pizzazz, the show? Thanks. All right, well, I'm going to answer this one, uh, and if Steve wants to add to it, he can do a follow-up audio. He can just add to the, the comments today or what have you, because I think I can give you a pretty good answer. Basically, off the top of my head, if I remember right, I think you're looking at 13.6 gallons of propane. Uh, it's somewhere around 13.5, but 13.6 sticks in my head per 10 gallons of gasoline, all things being equal. So if I have a, a two cans of gasoline, I need, you know... Uh, almost three uh, small things of propane to equal two cans of gasoline. So there's an efficiency factor there right away. But on top of that, if I'm in a situation where I'm running off generators and I'm having to refill and, and get fuel, um, 
it's often the case, now not always, but it's often the case that if I run out of all that I have stored up, that I can find somewhere to get gasoline. You know, I mean, I, I can find a, a station somewhere and get five gallons of gasoline. And all I got to do is pump it. I can dump it from one can to another. If anybody has some, they can give me some. Propane needs to be pressurized into a tank. So just expedience-wise, it's easier to, to get gasoline and to store gasoline, honestly. Now, what's the other side of that? Gasoline's good for about a year, even with stability, and it, it 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 will go longer than that. But it's great to rotate your gas at least once a year. As long as your tank don't leak, you'll die before anything goes wrong with that propane. It pretty much is what it is forever. Uh, the tank will rust and the gas will run out before anything else happens or something like that. So the propane has a longer shelf life. But even thinking about it this way, um, it would cost me a lot less. And be a lot easier for me to go out and buy 12 gas cans, which is 60 gallons of gasoline, and write Jan, Feb, March, APR, May, right? You got it, and one for every month, and just refill it every month, and 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 dump that month's into the car. So I'd never have gas more than a year old, and I have 60 gallons put away. If I wanted to put the equivalent in propane away. How many gallons of propane would I need without using Common Core math to get the answer? Well, I guess, being a dumb hick redneck, that I would say that since 10 gallons of gasoline is equal to 13.6 gallons of propane, and I'm figuring out for 60 gallons of gasoline that I would need six 10-gallon units so that six times 13.6 uh, it would end up in a situation where I'd need, what, 81, 81.6 gallons of, of, uh, of propane, right? So I'd need 16 five-gallon tanks and a little bit more of an extra one, 16.3. Uh, so there's no such thing as .3 of a tank, so about 17 five-gallon tanks of propane to equal... Uh, the same thing I could do with, with 12 gas cans. Now, how much is a propane tank and how much is a gas can? And how easy is it to put five gallons of gas in the can versus get the tank either real, refilled or do a cylinder exchange? So in the end, the only way that something like propane makes real sense for the long-term running of a generator is if I have a great big old pig like Steve was talking about, like a 500-gallon pig, and a truck comes and fills me up. If that's the case, I can run that daggone thing for weeks, especially if I'm you know, not doing it nonstop just to keep everything on all the time. Does that mean I would never run my little portable generator with a 5-gallon propane tank? Absolutely not. I'm going to use what I have when I have it. So if I convert it to run either natural gas, propane, or gasoline, I have a lot of flexibility. I think it makes a lot of sense to do for that reason. And I'm going to not not use you know that that tank for my grill. But I'm going to really get if I'm down to that, I'm going to be real conservative about how often I'm going to be running my little generator to charge my battery bank during the day and get the battery bank charged. I'm going to be running you know really really light at that point. And I also look at it this way. Most people, not all, but most people are going to have 16, 17, 20 uh, propane tanks, 5-gallon propane tanks. It just makes sense to have one bigger tank, right? So it just doesn't make sense to have all those tanks. Those tanks are an expense, and they're not real universal the way gasoline is. If I buy 12 gas cans, those things are going to last forever. 
and I'm going to buy the gasoline anyway. So all I'm going to do is for, let's say, if I want to do this over a year and stock up to that year's worth of 60 gallons of gasoline, I can buy one gas can and five extra gallons this month. And I can do it all the way through till I catch back up to myself, and I've got 12 cans of gas. I've got them all labeled month by month. And every time I'm, like, I need to go to the gas station and fill up, once a month I'll take the can with the right month on it, I'll dump it in my car, and put the empty can in the back of the truck or what have you. When I go to the gas station, top the car or the truck off, fill the can up and bring it home, at that point I actually haven't bought any more gas. So by using gasoline for that type of a purpose, I have the gasoline for my car, I have it for my generator, I have it to barter with. It's just much more flexible than propane. I also can barter with the gasoline. Let's say I'm in a situation where I do need to barter with a neighbor and they want five gallons of gas, And I say, well, I want X from you. And they say, fine. Well, where do you want the gas? I want it in my generator or I want it in my car. Well, it's real easy for me to go over there, take my gas can, dump it in, and leave with my can. I have to leave them the can. I can just deliver the, the fuel. If I have propane, I can't, like, push it into their generator. I have to let them have the, the tank, which delays how long it'll take for me to have the opportunity to get it refilled if I can With gas, I can give them the gas, and if I happen to be making a run, let's say there is an outage, it is going to last a long time, but the gas stations are still working for whatever reason. I can go fill it back up. It's just more flexible, more efficient and more flexible, and more uses. Again, most people's cars aren't going to run off a propane tank. Uh, not that they can't, because they certainly can't. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Hope you guys have a great re weekend and helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. The revolution is you. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.